Ready? Yep. Let's go. Healthy, healthy rainbow. Beautiful fish. <laughs> you dropped him, dude. But first, a word for our partners. Alaska Rodco, Alaskan Handmade Rods. National Wild Turkey Federation, South Sound Strutters, your conservation organization for Washington State turkey populations and habitats. Heather's Choice, healthy, flavorful, dehydrated meals for the backcountry. Use our discount code, theyoungguides15, to save at checkout. Shell Art Studio, original Alaskan-focused art. Slay Jays, it ain't all about the catching. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. I'm Keaton, and Kyle is out fishing the Oahe this week with his dad, so I hope they're having fun, um, sending lots of pictures up, catching some big trout, uh, catching some rainbows, catching some browns. Um, this guy's been like planning this trip for I don't know how long, probably couple months he just like calls me and he's just tying flies for it so hoping he's having a good time right now um so today we're going to be bringing matt from alaska rodco on as my co-host matt say hello how's it going everybody you're stuck with me today <laughs> uh and today we're bringing on eric locker um his instagram handle is ak trout spay um, Eric's an avid bird hunter and an avid uh, fly fisherman. Um, we were just discussing a little bit before the podcast about you know some of our likely career choices, uh, working in the schools and stuff. So just a lot of uh, background, and we're just really excited to bring Eric on. Um, and uh, yeah, so with that being said, welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's start out by... Uh, just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Well, like you said, my name is Eric Locker. I grew up in the lovely state of Iowa and uh, moved up to Alaska in January of 2017. Um, I grew up hunting and fishing quite a bit in Iowa. I don't necessarily remember the first time I ever went fishing, which means it was when I was pre-school age um my dad and grandpa were really big fishermen my grandpa was a bass fisherman and my uh, dad he really liked to walleye fish and um around the age of 13 i can't remember if i was 13 yet or not i was uh out fishing one of our local lakes and a guy showed up with a fly rod i knew it was a fly rod and we had just been fishing there with night crawlers and split shots. Is That was just like what we did and catch bass, bluegills and whatever bit. And he came up and started popping a bass popper across the surface. And this bass, largemouth bass came up and crushed it. And I was like, I have to get a fly rod. <laughs> and so I literally knew nobody who fly fished. And there were no fly fishing stores within probably... I don't know, several hundred miles from where I lived in Iowa. And uh, so 
we went on a trip, my family and I, down to Nashville. It was a really random trip. My dad had a work trip down there. And connected to the hotel that we were at was a mall with a Bass Pro Shop in it. And uh, I went there every day because I didn't have anything else to do. And they had a fly shop in there. I assume um, it was kind of outfitted for like those Tennessee tailwaters and stuff like that. And there was an Orvis Clearwater Classic 7.8 fly reel in there. And it was only $39.99 and I had 40 bucks. And I was like, I'm going to buy that thing. But it was still like to the age where I could, couldn't just spend my own money. So I went back and talked to my parents and my mom's like, you can't buy it. And I was like, why not? And she's like, this is just going to be one of those things that you're going to do and you're never going to really finish it. And you're just going to spend this money and never do it again. And so she bought uh, the complete guide to fly fishing book for me and made me read it cover to cover before I bought this reel. And uh, I ended up reading the whole book as fast as humanly possible. And before we left on the trip, I bought that reel and kind of the rest is history. I've been fly fishing ever since, taught myself how to cast in the backyard, in the grass. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me and my fly fishing background. Cool, cool. Did you ever get to fish like down like in Tennessee at all when on the work trip or just <laughs> no um I came home and bought a rod um found a store that had one and in that book I read that you like for bass fishing you wanted an eight weight rod so that's what I went with and bought a, a line to go with it and took it out to the lake and bought some bass poppers and uh, caught some bass and bought some little ones and caught some bluegills. And then I learned probably about a year later that there's some spring creeks in Northeast Iowa. And so I toned it down, bought a three weight and, uh, started fishing those creeks. Obviously I, I couldn't even really drive. So, um, just, we would go up there a couple times a year. Um, turns out one of my dad's friend, he is a fly fisherman and fished up there quite a bit. So we went on a couple trips up there with them and, uh, that was a good time. And then probably took it, started taking it a little bit more seriously when I could drive. Um, I went on a trip, a couple trips out West to trout fish, bought a five weight. And my first trip out there was to Fort Collins, Colorado. We fished for trout in the mountains above Fort Collins and uh, like for browns and rainbows, my grandpa and I, even though neither of us had ever done it before, we thought it would be cool. <laughs> and then um, I also went to Yellowstone a couple mm -hmm. times and uh, there was this show. Uh, we had this channel on direct TV that was called, or maybe it was a dish network um, that was called the DIY network. And there was uh a show that they did in Yellowstone uh, with Craig Matthews. He's the uh, fly shop owner of Blue Ribbon Fly Shop in West Yellowstone, Montana. And it was like we seriously went to Yellowstone because I watched that um, DIY show. And we went out there and I fished the Firehole River and the Madison and um, 
just had a good time out there catching trout on dry flies. Uh, someday I want to go back because I com- compared to now, I hardly caught any fish. <laughs> um, and then um, I fished really hard those northeast Iowa streams and then started fishing pretty hard locally too with a fly rod. Like I would kind of go back and forth between spinning gear and a fly rod. And then eventually um, when I went to college, I just kind of put away the spinning rod and did all fly fishing stuff. And um, I met some friends in college from Northern Minnesota and really got into uh, fly fishing for pike up there. Um, That was just still some of the best fly fishing I've ever had is uh fly fishing for pike up there did you ever hit the dripless area down like kind of like southern wisconsin yeah yeah that's that's primarily where i fished for trout um when i lived in iowa it was about two hours to the closest uh spring creek to where i grew up um and where i lived all through college and then we would travel anywhere up to like four hours uh, into the driftless area. So I, I fished all three states, um, Wisconsin, Iowa, and then southeastern Minnesota as well. I remember one one of the only times I've been to fish uh, north or southeast Minnesota, I got into this crazy caddis hatch and just caught a ton of browns on, on the surface. It was one of the coolest dry fly fishing experiences I've ever had. Awesome. <laughs> so you mentioned that, um, you know, you had like your dad's friend that was a fly fisherman. I mean, it doesn't really sound like you had a whole lot of people in your life that were doing it. How did you find inspiration? Like who, who were some of the people that inspired you when you started fly fishing? Oh man. Um, well, definitely that Craig Matthews, um, he was, really the only guy that I, that I knew from West Yellowstone, Montana. And he, when I went out there on that trip, after I watched the DIY, I bought several of his books and, um, most of them were about Yellowstone. He's got like a complete guide to Yellowstone fishing. And, um, he had a couple, um, Yellowstone hatches is one of the names of his books and Yellowstone hatches and fly patterns. And, um, I bought those and read them a lot and kind of got into the whole like entomology side of things and learning about all the different types of insects. And then in college, um, I took several entomology classes. I went to school for wildlife biology and um, I saw that aquatic entomology was an option. And so I, it fit my program, but I really took it to learn more about insects for fly fishing. <laughs> cool. And so um, I learned that a lot of the same insects that they find out west are right there in the the better water quality streams in Iowa. And so that was kind of got me excited about it. And then over time, um, even though I didn't have a lot of inspiration, I, I got a job at a sportsman's warehouse. Um, and they, I met lots of people. Anytime somebody would come up and buy fly time material, I would talk their ear off about fly fishing. And then, um, probably my either sophomore or junior year, 
of college, I, I met somebody who um, was from Montana that came to Iowa for college. His name's Ryan Coke, and him and I are really good friends now. He's one of my best friends. But um, I met him at Sportsman's as he was buying fly tying material. And um, he was originally from Montana, grew up fly fishing. And him and I just really bonded over fly fishing. And still today, like I just texted him today. And we talk about fly fishing literally almost every day. Um, it's it's pretty cool that you can bond so much over something yeah. like that. Did you ever get uh, any of your family members covered to fly? Or are they still uh, spin fishermen? <laughs> <laughs> I got my dad to. Um, I got my dad to go with a couple times, and. Uh, I got him to buy a five weight that I used to have. And then, um, he bought one of my other three weights. We did that a couple of times. I was kind of proud of him. That was probably like 15 years ago now. And, uh, he just went to Colorado with, uh, the guy that took us up to Northeast Iowa a couple of times and he took his fly rod and tried to catch some fish on it. And I guess he did just last <laughs> September. So that was pretty cool. He can still do it. Um, and then um, some of my friends in Iowa, like I definitely converted them to fly fishing for sure. My friend Phil, he never fly fished in his life before. And he went to uh, Minnesota with us several times. And then um, I convinced him to start using one in uh in Iowa when we were back and uh, we ended up doing several trips together to Northeast Iowa as well. And uh, he's even come up to visit me in Alaska, like three or four different times and caught salmon and trout. It's been pretty, pretty cool. So, yeah, I mean, I've probably lost count of the different, all the different people that I've converted to fly yeah. fishing. <laughs> kind, of, kind of a segue. I was going to ask you about spay. You seem to have that effect on people because you were actually the first one. You hit me up and you're like, oh, man, we got to go spay fishing. And I had never done it before. And I'm just like, oh, oh, I don't know. And then, yeah, we linked up. And, dude, ever since then, I've just been hooked. Yeah. it's So I don't know for sure if I ever had heard of spay fishing before I came to Alaska. Um, I can't remember for sure if I had, I read one book about steelhead fishing in the Pacific Northwest. And I, I do think that the guy in the book probably spoke about it a little bit, but I couldn't have told you that when I moved to Alaska and the whole thing just kind of fell into my lap. I was, um, trying to, trying to learn the area and figure out um, what to fish when I first moved to Alaska and I was intimidated by the Kenai river and it was uh, spring of the year. Um, the Kenai had just closed. It was around May 1st and I bought a little one man raft and I heard this lake stocked Arctic char and I never caught an Arctic char. So I thought, well, I'm going to go there and take my raft and, um, catch an arctic char and so i just bought a brand new scientific angler sinking fly line for my five weight and i i also got my motor mounted on my boat for the first time and so 
I went out there and I started fishing it and I just really wasn't thinking about the line that was taking out of my reel where it would go on a sinking line and it also sinks and so I turned my motor on and cut it in half immediately and so I had to I had to go into the bank well it kind of was I think fate because at the boat launch there was a guy there that wasn't there when I had first gotten to the boat launch and he was teaching this lady how to fly fish and how to fly cast and we got to talking and he we exchanged numbers and I was going to be fishing um the Swan Lake canoe system out here for rainbows in a couple weeks and he wanted to hear how that went and a long story short he calls me in like August so it had been several months and he was like have you ever heard of spay fishing and I was like no what is that and he's like well it's something that somebody taught me how to do and just wondered if you'd be interested in learning how to do it. I've got a couple extra rods that um, you can buy from me and I'll teach you how to do it. And I was like, sure, I've got nothing else to do. <laughs> and so he, he took me to a lake so we didn't have to worry about current. And he showed me all the different kind of casts. And uh, I started on a switch rod. It was a Cabela's switch rod, seven weight, I think it was 11 and a half footer. And uh, he thought, you know, if I started with a switch rod, if I decided that it wasn't going to work out, I could still use it for a single hand rod because he knew I already did that. And, uh, I kind of fell head over heels after catching my first fish on a spay rod. I was like, man, this is where it's at. And, uh, I think what's special about it or what was special about it for me, at least at the beginning was when you're spay fishing and you've got that line out there and you're, um constantly connected to your fly there's no slack in the line unlike all the other types of fly fishing where you got to set the hook to get tight to the fish you're always tight to your fly so when that fish hammers your fly you feel everything and it's instant lightning through your hand when that life all of a sudden hits your fly and you're like man that was epic and so um i definitely had that the first fish i ever hooked was a rainbow on the the upper Kenai and I was like that was magical (laughs) and uh, I've been hooked ever since so I learned how to spay fish within within probably uh, about eight months of living in Alaska and then uh, what's really funny and a little bit sad is that um, I really didn't start spay fishing until November of that year even though I learned how to do it in August. And then uh, I caught my first 30-inch rainbow not that long after that, (laughs) which is just just kind of crazy to think about because some people fish their whole lives and never get to see a 30-inch fish, and I I caught one within just a couple months of starting. So when you – what do you mostly target on your spay rod – and then have you also ever tried, do you like, well, do you ever prefer like Skagit or do you like to do some Scandi fishing or do you like both? So I've really only ever done Skagit. Um, here in Alaska, Skagit is king because um, we're always trying to turn over big sink tips and big flies. Um, I'm definitely interested in Scandi and even some of the traditional lines, but I haven't I haven't dove into that uh, 
so to speak, quite yet. Um, it's interesting. I was just talking to a guy at Ashland Fly Shop just this weekend because I was thinking about getting a Scandy line to fish uh, the higher part of the water column. And uh, I kind of decided that I was just going to still fish a Skagit head and uh, go the cheaper route and just fish uh, poly leaders and stuff like that. But um, I probably a better question is what don't I target with the spay rod? Um, I, I mean, I've caught all five species of salmon on the spay rod. I believe the sockeye salmon didn't actually eat my fly, but the fly was in their mouth. I'm not exactly sure what was going on there. <laughs> if I just flossed them or, or what the deal was, I was fishing for Kings when I caught the sockeye, but, um, all five species of salmon, dollies, rainbows, grayling, all, um, I haven't necessarily targeted all of them on a spay rod. I, I didn't, I didn't target the grayling on a spay rod. They just kind of came out as I was rainbow fishing. And then, uh, I definitely didn't target those sockeyes, but, but everything else I've targeted, uh, on the spay rod. Nice. Yeah. You got like kind of your favorite like line and sink tip setups. I know like some people are kind of partial to like OPST or Airflow or Skagit Max. Mm -hmm. The the first the first uh when I was first getting into spay fishing, OPST had a whole bunch of different videos out there to talk about it. And so I watched those those videos on YouTube and they kind of sold me on their lines. And so I also had a switch rod too at the time. So those, those short heads that OPST has, their commando heads perform pretty well on a switch rod. And so I, I started out with those and the real Mao tips. And the Mao tips work really well here on the Kenai because we have lots of um, gravel bars and buckets and stuff. And so they swing over those gravel bars a lot easier than when they get behind there into the bucket, They those tips get right down there into the fish um and then you know in deeper water you can just use a full 10 foot of t11 or t14 or whatever and so um that's what i started with and then when i got my first full spay rod being 12 and a half foot or longer um i ended up uh getting into the rio skagit max and with my casting stroke that's my favorite head for sure and with every rod that i've had and matching grain weights that's what i can cast the best and i can launch that thing way further than i could ever launch those commando heads um the i've started with opst running line as well their laser line um and then i went to echo or not echo but airflow had uh, their airflow impact running line for a while. I don't think they make it anymore. And so um, I had to switch over to right now I'm using the scientific anglers absolute flat. It's flat mono. And that is the best running line I've ever used. Um, it's really easy to grip with your hand. And then it also doesn't get caught in the water as bad because it's flat. It just kind of zips right out of there. Um, so you're when you're fishing different loops, because I fish for like three loops when I'm really casting far out there and it doesn't have a problem with that at all. And so 
I, that's definitely my favorite line. And I'm just starting to experiment with other tips right now. I still primarily use the light and medium mal tips, depending on my rod size. I've got anywhere from a four weight to eight weight spay rods. Um, yeah, those are probably my favorite. How's, how's the memory on that scientific angler uh, shooting line? Oh, there's not a lot of memory in no. it. It's pretty amazing. The um, That was my one complaint about the laser mm -hmm. line is uh, how much memory it had. And even the Berkeley, <laughs> Berkeley big game has less memory than it does. <laughs> um, and I didn't realize how much of a difference round mono versus flat mono would be. And it, it's like you can cast way further mm -hmm. with with flat mono of the same pound test diameter. Um, it's just, it's like nine day different. What, what kind of uh, flies are you fishing when you're spay fishing? What's like, what's your go-to, you don't need to tell us your whole, you know, fly box, but, uh, you know, what are yeah. some of your favorite flies to fish for when you're, you know, going out fishing in Alaska? Uh, I pretty much carry, um, people call them string leeches or, um, like a bunny leech of various colors. And so like for silvers and chums and, um, pinks, like a bright pink bunny leech is going to work every day, uh, over any other color. You can mix in some other colors there just to target some fish that after you've hit a hole pretty hard, uh, try some different colors. Chartreuse works really well close to the ocean. Yeah. And then uh, like for rainbows, um, same thing, just like smaller size. And uh, try not to put like, a, I try not to put like a ton of rabbit on there because they're pretty buoyant and hard to cast and hard to get down without a ton of weight when you put a lot on there. So I like to kind of use more synthetic materials to go with it. So then get down faster. Yeah. So do you, do you prefer to, um, when you're fishing that leech pattern, do you prefer dumbbell eyes or do you prefer to just let that sink tip, uh, bring it down? When I'm spay fishing, I like to use, um, a brass bead as opposed to, dumbbell eyes i like to let that sink tip bring that fly down and not have uh dumbbell eyes drive it into the gravel when i'm stripping flies especially for silvers i like to have dumbbell eyes because kind of gives it that jigging motion that you want that triggers the bite for silvers um and then i just use like a 4.8 size um bead uh brass bead on the front of that shank fly or uh i actually like to use um for spay fishing, I like to use the intruder style fly, even if it's a, a bunny leech. And so I use uh, primarily aquafly shanks. Uh, those would be the round eye ones for uh, putting a bead on there. And then I use the return eye ones if I'm going to use dumbbell eyes. And then uh, I use hairline brand. Um, it's called Senyo trailer wire. Mm-hmm. It's a it's wire that you make a loop, you tie into that shank that doesn't have a hook, and then you put like an octopus beak hook in there, and then 
when that hook gets dull or whatever, you can just trade it out really quick for a new one. And it's hard to beat. Like uh, for salmon, I like to use the owner super sharp needle point hooks, like size two or one. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for for rainbows and uh, like silver fishing on the swing, I like to use, um, they're called Aqua Talon by Aquafly, uh, number twos. Um, I'll, I'll sometimes go to number four, depending on the size of my fly. Nice. So growing up in uh, Iowa and, and mostly like bass fishing and, and stuff, what did you find challenging for you when you moved up to Alaska? Like, did you find oh, comparisons man. in the fishery at all? Like, was it a hard change? <laughs> like, do you notice things that you did uh, in Iowa like, help you in Alaska? Or I, I don't. I think it was just totally different. I don't. I don't know if I. I mean, I knew how to tie knots. That's about <laughs> what I knew about fishing when I came to Alaska compared to to Iowa but like everything's just so different like one of the reasons why I didn't fish the Kenai right away is because I was so intimidated by the size of the river and the flow and um just kind of worried about how it would go and I hadn't fished anything flowing that was bigger than a spring creek really Mm -hmm. even in Yellowstone those those rivers up that high are not that that wide and so that intimidated me at first and was super challenging but um i had somebody the guy who taught me how to spay fish take me out a couple times and just help me uh see that it wasn't so scary Mm -hmm. and that you don't always have to have a boat and so um, that's also something i assumed that you had to have a boat to fish uh all the different rivers here in alaska and there's there's plenty of them that you can um, fish from the bank uh, throughout the state. And so once I learned uh, that it's not so scary, it was still a pretty steep learning curve, but I had quite a few people that helped me out along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Grow, growing up, you know, I didn't do a whole lot of river fishing, um, but like getting into that, I know that daunting feeling, especially like you know, fishing some smaller rivers and then going up to like a place like the Skagit or, you know, something like that. That's a pretty wide river. And you're like, well, I can't wade fish this and catch fish here. But once you start breaking stuff apart, you can really, you know, figure it out. I'm sure it's the same up there. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It's not nearly as scary as I thought it was. All right. Yeah. Big question I had to ask you, Eric, is what are some rookie spay mistakes we can avoid? We're trying to kind of up our cast and game because I feel like I got a lot of them. <laughs> well, the most common thing that happens to new casters um, is something that we call in the spay wow. world blowing your anchor. And so with Skagit casting and Skagit heads, they're, they're sustained anchor casts. Um, which means that the fly is staying in the water. It's not coming out of the water when you're forming your D loop, which is then when you start your forward cast. And so when you're setting up, you're, 
your sustained anchor cast, you know, we have the snap T or the uh, single spay or double spay. Um, you That fly can come out of the water. Like, obviously, it comes out on a snap T. But once you start that sweep to your D loop, uh, that fly, I like to say it turns the corner and it the fly will be like facing upstream or um, at wherever you are toward you. And then when that D loop forms, it turns, the fly turns and kind of gives you a visual that it's time to start your forward cast. If you're too late on that, the fly will come flying out of the water when you form your D loop and it blows your anchor is what we call it. And the anchor is your fly. And so all your energy goes out the back side of your D loop with the fly. And then when you go and do your forward cast, it just fizzles out and lands in a pile in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a definitely a rookie mistake that you want to try to avoid. And is there ways to, is there ways that you can get like a, a fly line that will help you, you know, prevent blowing your anchor uh, does it just come from practicing casting? What what what's the like best? It can happen. Can happen for a couple different reasons. So like, um, it could be user error. It could be that you're just your timing's wrong and you're letting it blow. But it also could be your like your equipment error. Like if you have a thirteen foot or thirteen and a half foot rod, but you pair it up with a a real max like skagit match short line only a 20 foot line you might be blowing your anchor because that needs the longer 23 or 24 foot head and so um with the head and the tip and the fly uh or i mean the leader to the fly um you just might be too short and that's why you're blowing your anchor so you can't form your d loop properly and so um, it's kind of a big learning curve when you're starting because you need to make sure that all of that is right. And then you just get out there and start practicing and practice and practice and practice and keep forming that D loop. And eventually you, um, you won't have to look anymore. Like you can just feel it and you can feel when the, the rods loaded and go, go ahead on your forward cast. But that's that's one of the the hardest things. And um, the other rookie mistake I'd say um, is that there's different grain windows for each rod, and um, they they are all like for Skagit, your grain window of your rod uh, needs to match your head, not your head plus your tip. Um, it's different for different types of spay lines. And so say you're, so right now I've got a 12 and a half foot six weight and I was getting a line for that and the top end is 500. And so I went with a 475 Rio Skagit Max Power, which is their shorter 20 foot head and um, a 10 foot Rio uh, Mau tip. And that's perfect for that. 12 and a half foot rod. If I went up to a 13 foot rod and used the same head and line, I would probably start blow my anchor if I tried casting it right away because it's too short for that length of rod. 
that yeah, makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. How long did you have to, you know, just get out with the rod to start practicing? And what was the point where you were just like, all right, it was all muscle memory. You just felt pretty confident. Probably between one and two years to where I felt like I was actually doing it well, I would say. Um, the first year was pretty ugly. Like (laughs) I remember that. I remember thinking after I caught that first 30 inch rainbow, that was the worst cast I've made today, but I still caught a fish and it was really good fish. So that's the cool thing about spay fishing. and, And I've taught a lot of people how to do it is that just go out and do it. And once the current straightens out your, your shooting head, or your head and your sink tip and your fly, like it's swinging and you're fishing. Like if it's ugly, the fish don't really care for the most part. Um, and obviously you don't want to make a terrible cast and have the sink tip coming through the fish first before the fly. But um, for the most part, the fish don't care and you just get out there and do it and have fun. So, what when it comes to because we're like covering all the topics when it comes to um hook setting on a spay rod what's the difference when you know like on a single hand you're going to kind of take it up past you know to your ear do you want to do that on a spay rod or how do you want to do you want to let it the fish just grab it what's your tips on that that's a great question so what we like to say, my friends and I, is don't trout set. And so, um, like with most types of fly fishing, you, the fish takes the fly and you're not tight to the fish. So you got to get tight to the fish. So like if you're dry fly fishing, you're going to go straight up and trout set and hook that fly. And then you want to maintain that position with your rod high the whole time because that's where you set the hook. If you're stripping flies for fish, you want to strip set into that fish, not raise your fly rod up. You want to keep your fly pointed or your fly rod pointed at the fly and the fish as you strip back and kind of make sure you got that hook planted in there. And then you can start um, lifting your rod. For spay fishing, you're already tight to the fish. So you don't need to jam that fish because you're you're already tight to them there's no slack in the line and so you you want to have your drag set pretty loose so that if a fish imagine that fish is down there on the bottom he sees your fly and he leaves his holding spot he goes out grabs the fly and then turns and he's going to go back to his holding spot again you want to make sure he does that before you start doing anything. And that, especially like with those aqua talon hooks, they've got a really downturn point and that's designed to not hook flesh until um, that fish turns into the, the hook. And then it's hooked in, you know, the, the thick part of the corner of the mouth. And then that fish is probably going to start freaking out by them. And then it's going to take line and, 
I just slowly turn my rod toward the bank, keep it low the whole fight because my rod was low when the fish got hooked and I don't want to maintain that um, kind of height off the water, the rod tip height off the water. And then I like to make sure that I keep the fish perpendicular to me. Uh, so like if that fish starts going downstream and there's room for me to do it, I'll chase it downstream because anytime a fish, regardless of what type of fly fishing you're doing, gets straight below you and starts thrashing at the surface, that fly is going to pop out. So I like to try to make sure that I stay perpendicular to the yeah, fish. That makes sense. Cool. There's, there's quite a few videos out there on YouTube. Um, OPST has a how to hook set. Ashland Fly Shop also has a good one. And then I just saw one the other day, Water Time Outfitters in Oregon's got a really good one too. Kind of what you want to do. Yeah. Do you have any any tips as far as because I know you're you're always catching the, those big bows, but also like those big, big kings, and you never have a net. Every time I see you walking down the river, <laughs> like, the dude never has a net. I mean, you're always just tailing them and I see so many people I've witnessed on the river, you know, they're bringing a decent size fish in and a lot of them, if they're not mm -hmm. having a net and it's kind of their first bigger fish, they kind of seem to struggle. Yeah. Do you have any tips on like, you, you get the, the yeah. 30 inch bow, what are you going to do? The, I don't know if I'm changing my opinion on this or not lately, but my theory has been in the past that um netting a fish is going to potentially um cause more stress to that fish if you if you get it in the net and it thrashes and i've seen it before where the line gets caught in the gills when that happens and the fly or the fly gets caught in the net and the fly is deep in there um like it just isn't good and it's a lot can go bad in the net so i've kind of stayed away from nets but the problem is you have to still get that fish in really fast otherwise you'll also cause a lot of stress because it's a really long fight and so i've always just uh tried to get that fish in um as fast as i can and um once I get it to the leader, I'll, I'll, this is a really big no, no. If you, you know, want that, um, hero shot or whatever picture of the fish, but I grab the leader, pull it in, pop the fly out, let it swim. Yeah. Um, and that's what I believe causes the least amount of stress on the fish. As long as I hurry up and get it in. Now, if it's a really big fish, um, sometimes it's best to get that fish in the net uh, because especially if you have somebody that you, and I fish a lot by myself. And so that's part of why I don't fish with the net. Um, it pays off to fish with a net. I think a lot of times when you're fishing with somebody else, cause you can net that fish as it's flopping, like, uh, whatever your head length away from you. So 30 feet away from you or so, as opposed to getting that fish at your feet, you know, um, it's a lot easier when that fish starts thrashing to have your buddy go and net the fish. And so just kind of depends on the situation. When I fish by myself, I don't like to use a net. When I fish with my buddies, I like to yeah. use a net. 
you talk about adding stress to the fish, but uh, in, in my opinion, it adds stress to me when I don't got a net. You know, <laughs> I'd rather yeah. have it with me so I can scoop it up, pop it, and drop. You know, pop lock, drop it. You yep. know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Uh, some of the biggest fish I've caught, um, I did not have a net, and some of the biggest fish that I've lost, if we would have had a net, we probably would have yeah. landed because there'd be thrashing out there about 20 feet and nobody there. But if you it. know, like, if you know going into it, like, you got to have that kind of mindset, like, Hey, you know, I might hook this big fish, but I know that there's a good chance that I could lose it, but I'm going to, that's the risk I'm going to take without yep. the net, you know, just to have a healthier, um, you know, catch and release. So, I mean, that's, yeah, exactly. Props to you. There's no doubt in my mind though, if you're fishing like out of the boat, you got to have oh, yeah. a net Yeah. or uh, like a lot of a lot of people up here use fish removing tools, but I think the net sometimes that can be faster, but uh, other than that, the net's a better deal. I, I've been like guiding in my boat. It's only happened like once or twice, but I've looked down with a nice fish and I look down at my feet and I'm like, where's my net? And then I'm like, Oh yeah, it's back <laughs> in my truck, which is like, I don't know how I forget it, but just for, you know, you space it. So I should I should say that I pretty much always use a net for salmon. Um, it's just really hard to. It's really hard to get that fish into tailed uh, when like you, you can break a rod really easy trying to tail a big salmon. Uh, it's just a lot easier to net those, yeah. but for rainbows, I kind of go back and forth. Yeah. Have you ever tried one of those cradle nets? I've seen some guys use them, but I've never really messed around with them much. I've seen them. I've never used them. I think they'd be a pain in the butt. Yeah, it's like, how do you scoop with them? You know, I feel like yeah. a, a traditional net would be a little more easier. Yeah, and I, I should say also, too, when I use a net, I I never use, like, a, a nylon net without any coating on it. Um, I... I would prefer like the big rubber nets. Um, but sometimes those get like the, the rubber is so big, it's hard to sweep it through the water fast yeah. enough. Um, and then, so I kind of impartial to like, like Beckman has some really good uh, like coated nets. Um, those are, those were what I liked the most. Nice. The, to kind of go back a little bit the guys with the cradle nets the guys who cradle net fish are like they're usually like always really solid at it you ever watch videos like <laughs> if they're cradling fish like they're good at it i i don't know what it is such a commitment though because you gotta like go behind the fish oh, yeah. and then like shuffle it down and get behind it and, and go and just like close the net on it it's like <laughs> grab a round net with a handle and just scoop it you know yeah. Well, we covered a lot about your, your your spay fishing and kind of your journey down fly fishing. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to kind of touch on before we moved on? I got a little. I want to hit a little portion about your bird hunting journey. Um, I think that's that's pretty much it for 
for fly fishing. That's kind of the introduction anyways. So bird hunting, that's kind of your, your second passion. Do you, you like uh, big game hunting? Do you like that any of that kind of hunting? Or are you mostly just like birds? I pretty much like all types of hunting. And so growing up, I, uh, I did a lot of predator hunting, fox and coyote and uh deer hunting uh did some pheasant hunting then and kind of dabbled a little bit in duck hunting in high school and college uh bow hunted whitetails and uh rifle hunted shotgun hunted and all anytime i could be out in the woods that's what i did um and then i got a bird dog when i was 15 i think uh maybe maybe almost 15 i think i was still 14 like a month uh until i turned 15 but that kind of gave us a reason to go bird hunting and so um the pheasant numbers were still pretty good in iowa back then and we took would take our dog out every fall and, and pheasant hunt and then um when i got it into college the bird numbers in iowa the pheasant numbers were really down and i'd befriended the same people that i went pike fishing up in northern minnesota and started taking my dog up rough grouse hunting there in the fall quite a bit and uh kind of fell in love with that it's, it's a lot different type of upland bird hunting than than pheasants you're in the woods not the grass <laughs> the big open. and yeah and there's like almost this uh, rough grouse hunting is almost like romanticized about there's like uh, the northeast um, partridge hunting of the eight, late 1800s and early 1900s. Burton Spiller is an author that wrote a lot about it and I read his books and uh, I remember dreaming about that when i was in high school that i could ever take my dog to do that and uh would read books about it but never got to do it until college and then um i kind of took a break on bird hunting that dog passed away in 2017 and we moved to alaska and i didn't i shot ptarmigan with a rifle when i first moved here and just to kind of say i did it and um, I bear hunted and moose hunted, uh, caribou hunted. Um, and it was on those big game hunts that I started thinking, man, these ptarmigan, they like what I was told about ptarmigan hunting was that they're really dumb, just like spruce grouse. And you don't shoot them with a shotgun. You shoot them with a rifle. You don't need a dog. Well, those people that told me that were completely wrong. <laughs> every time i went on a big game hunt a big old covey of ptarmigan would get up and i'm like there's no way i could have shot those with a rifle like they came out of nowhere and got out of there so fast i could barely get them with a the shotgun yeah and i was like these would offer a great wing shooting opportunity and so um during uh 2020 i was on a, a fly out caribou hunt and we didn't bring a shotgun and i've never seen so many ptarmigan in my life and i was like that's it it had been about five years since i'd been bird hunting 
and I'm like, I can't handle it anymore. I got to go. So I, uh, I kind of found a similar area like elevation wise and the valley looked super similar on onyx maps to where we had flown into but on the road system and i went up in there got into ptarmigan right away shot two different species of ptarmigan and i was hooked and uh i um it's kind of a really cool story because when i was in junior high and we were thinking about getting a bird dog um there was a show on the outdoor life network called hunting with hank and Hank is a bird dog, a Llewellyn setter. And him and his owner, Des Young, would go hunting all over the country, hunting upland game birds. And I knew they hunted ptarmigan in Alaska. And I would tape the episodes because they played while I was at school. And I'd watch them when I got home. And I knew they hunted ptarmigan in Alaska, but I didn't know where. And it had been 15 years since I'd watched that show. And so after I went ptarmigan hunting, I'm like, I'm, I want to figure out where in the world they hunted. And so I scoured the internet, finally found the DVD. It was like 50 bucks for this DVD, but it said Alaska ptarmigan hunting. <laughs> and I got it home, put the DVD in, and episode one, season one, they flew into the very same lake that we caribou hunted on and hunted right there for ptarmigan and i could not believe it and so i was actually facebook friends with the guy who was starting this lodge uh back then it was like 1995 when it was filmed and they one of the things they were going to do is fly out ptarmigan hunting trips and so i facebook messaged him and it was like hey kind of a cool story uh, his name is bob Letta. he's the uh works for all alaska outdoors lodge here in Soldatna. and I was like, here's some pictures of the birds that I just shot when I was a kid. I used to watch this show and you were on there and they interviewed him and he's like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Like I would use you and your dog in the fall to do some ptarmigan hunts. We still doing them. And I was like, oh, man, I don't have a dog. So then I start th started thinking, man, I probably need to get a dog. <laughs> and so I went down the bird hunting rabbit hole for the next year. And we did another fly out uh, hunt this time for bears. But I also wanted to shoot a bunch of ptarmigan because that trip, seeing all those ptarmigan was uh, haunting me. And so my cousin, my brother-in-law and I went on a fly out trip, brought three shotguns and three rifles and had bear tags and um, small game licenses. And we went and shot. I shot a bear they shot at bears <laughs> and then uh we shot a bunch of ptarmigan <laughs> and so on the way back i was um talking to the pilot and he was like man it's pretty cool you got into the ptarmigan you ought to call bob letta from all alaska outdoors and i'm like well i've kind of been talking to him and he's like well you better talk to him again so i called him up and uh or he called me up one day and it was just kind of like talking about the opportunity uh, they do fly out ptarmigan hunting trips, um, mostly the month of September, and they need needed uh, a new guide to kind of um, keep things going and somebody with some younger legs. And uh, so I was like, well, I'm really interested, but I don't have a dog. And he's like, well, you better get a dog yesterday. 
And so I started looking for a dog and I, I went right off the bat. I went to the guy that we got our dog from back when I was 15. And I thought that'd be kind of a cool story to get a dog from that breeder. But he said, no, I, I don't have any dogs coming soon. I just got a female from a litter that was born in June, but I'll let you know, I'll keep my eyes open. So this was a guy out of Iowa. And so I was on a list for a litter that was going to be born in April of that year and uh, went down for Christmas down to Iowa. And that guy found my dad's number from his file back in 2005 because he couldn't figure out how to get a hold of me again. He lost my phone number and was like, hey, is your son still looking for a dog? And he's like, yeah, he's actually here right now. He just got here yesterday. He's like, well, one of the litter mates from the female that I got uh, in, in June is up for sale if he wants it. And so it was about a 50 minute drive to go down and look at it. So we went down and look at it and, uh, we ended up flying at home on Alaska airlines. And, um, it's kind of funny because he's like, well, you need a dog yesterday. Well, I didn't really even realize the dog was already born <laughs> that I would be getting. So that worked out pretty well. And man, he is good. I didn't even know how good a dog, um, he was going to be. And I honestly had no idea that a dog could be this good. And I mean, I think everybody kind of brags about their dog, but, um, I was just really only going with the experience that I've had with the one dog that I've had. And this dog's temperament and nose is just so much better than hers was that it's really exciting. So, um, I ended up starting, uh, guiding for all Ask outdoors doing ptarmigan hunts, uh, in September on September 1st last year of 2022 and uh, did them for that month uh, flew all over the place taking clients out and shooting birds it was a great time and uh, I'll be doing it uh, full time for them this fall that's cool pretty excited yeah what a cool story too yeah, that's like, crazy <laughs> i love that it comes full circle you know you you talk about your dog growing up and then mm -hmm. like it, it just holds that piece you know you're just laying pieces of a puzzle and it just yeah that's yeah that's awesome what's really cool about that is there hasn't been a ptarmigan film since then since 1995 um filmed like that i can find anywhere and there's only one upland bird hunting show uh, on TV right now, and it's called The Flush. Um, Travis Frank is the the host of that, and uh, it's been it's changed names I think once it used to be like Pheasants Forever TV. Now it's called The Flush. They're based out of Minneapolis. Um, Ron Shara Productions is the name of the the company, but they ended up coming out. To Alaska last September and we filmed a, a ptarmigan show it's going to be airing this summer it's, it's pretty cool <laughs> okay. and you did you land was it like were they coming up to see you or were they coming up for his outfitter and you ended up being the guide they ended up well originally he was just coming up to see me um, I've got a, a bird hunting Instagram as well called Alaska Bird Hunter and he found me on there and the bird hunting community in the united states is pretty small anyways and so uh, we knew of each other already and he's like man that'd be really cool to get up there and do an alaska show 
And so we were planning it out and I hadn't started working for the lodge yet. But um, as soon as I found out that he might be coming, uh, I contacted Bob uh, at All Alaska and was like, hey, I think this would be a really cool thing. It'd be awesome to do a fly out trip with them one of the days. And so the first day of the hunt, we did a fly out trip and got into willow ptarmigan and whitetail ptarmigan. And then that area you can also hike into. So we, we got dropped off and then hiked out of there. So that was kind of a cool part of the show. And then um, there's a third species of ptarmigan called the rock ptarmigan. And I've not shot a lot of those. Like we just kind of take them opportunistically. Um, they're, they're pretty nomadic. Like they're not always in the same spot like willows and whitetails. And so if you run across them, we hunt them, but normally we don't pursue them. And, uh, on our second hunt, we ended up getting into rock ptarmigan. So he was able to get what we call the Alaska ptarmigan slam and shot all three species of ptarmigan on his trip. So that was pretty awesome. We got it on TV. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, going back to the, to the dog, I know like a lot of guys, like every, you know, I grew mm -hmm. up in a waterfowl family. So it was always like labs and Irish setters and stuff like that. But like, what's your favorite breed for like, cause you do mostly like upland bird hunting, right? Yeah. So the dog that I had back in, in 2005, when we got her as a puppy, she was a German short hair pointer and, um, liver and white color. Uh, I, I think they have quite a bit of English pointer in their history of breeding those colored ones. Um, but that was like what I grew up with was German short hair pointers. And at first glance, I didn't know if that's what I wanted to get in Alaska because like it's cold here and they're pretty short furred, thin skinned. Um, but they do range really well compared to other mm -hmm. breeds and Alaska in the fall, you want your dog to range way out there to find ptarmigan that you would have never walked by. And there's times where he ranges three to 500 yards and hunts willow patches that I would have never walked by. And so um, he'll go on point and hold that point the whole time till you get there. So I had a friend, fortunately, that I met through bird hunting he's a fisherman too. He lives here in Kenai. His name's Evan. Um, he already had a, a German short hair puppy that he got. Um, he, he was born and raised here, but he spent some time in Wyoming, uh, his first engineering job out of college and, um, got a dog down there just kind of like as a companion. And, um, it, it happened to be a German short hair pointer. So when he got back to Alaska, he got a job up here, moved. The dog was I think maybe a year old. He's like, well, I guess I better start bird hunting. If I got a German short hair pointer, yeah. that's what they're meant to do. So he started bird hunting and we happened to kind of cross paths in a way on our bird hunting journey. He started hunting ptarmigan the same exact month that I like restarted bird hunting. And we both posted pictures of ptarmigan on our, our regular Instagrams at the time. And, uh, I didn't have a bird hunting one or a fishing one per se back then. And we were like, Hey, we should go hunting sometime. So we finally went hunting 
not that fall, but I think it was February of maybe January or February of that year, the next year, I guess. And we've become really good friends. And uh, he was, he's in that show with me and um, we've done a ton of hunting together. And so seeing his dog work before I got my own dog kind of solidified in my mind that the German short hair pointer was the right tool, even though uh, the weather is pretty cold for them in the winter, but like, it's really like, I'm not going to want to go hunting for ptarmigan if it's too cold for the dog, if that makes sense. So we, we just don't go when it's that cold. So what's your, uh, what's your go-to like shotgun when you're hunting ptarmigan? Like, and what kind of shot are you using? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm on a 28 gauge train right now. I've got three different ones. <laughs> um, they're, I'm kind of, um, in love with them for all almost all upland bird species maybe uh not so much like rooster pheasants um it, it can it can kill them for sure i've done it um but it's not necessarily the yeah. the right tool for the job uh, but for everything else it is awesome and i shoot uh either three quarter ounce or one ounce load of seven and a half shot and that is perfect for ptarmigan it's a great mountain gun. They weigh anywhere from like five to six pounds. Like most of mine are sitting at five and a half pounds, yeah. which is a perfect mountain gun. Um, a 20 gauge is great too. A lot of those are about six pounds, but um, like a 410 uh, just isn't the right tool for the job, even though they're light and would be a good mountain gun. They don't pattern great. And then um, they're kind of known for being bird cripplers when you shoot them out of the air. And then a 12 gauge is just really big and bulky. My, my buddy Evan started with a Remington 870 Wingmaster, And <laughs> he, would, he would carry that thing around. Um, and the mountain hunting up here is just crazy different. Like it's nothing like hopping out of your truck after pheasants or any other type of bird yeah. species in the lower 48 and hunting for a little bit with your vest and whatever like there's days where we'll do 15 to 18 miles in a day and the dogs will do like 35 to 40 so we've kind of got this cool system he's got 28 gauge now too and so we've got eberly stock backpacks with the scabbard sewed in we put the gun in there on the way up in a gun sock. We've got two um, hiking sticks that we use just to yeah. kind of take the weight off as you're going up. And any any amount you can do that like makes an 18 mile day that much less, like that much easier on your joints and stuff like that. And then as soon as we get up into ptarmigan country, so ptarmigan live up above tree line. Uh, once we get into that zone we'll trade the shotgun out and put the sticks in our scabbard and then um hunt from there and it's it's just a great time that sounds awesome nothing better how big are ptarmigan like what can you compare them to they're they're probably well you guys got chuckers down there they're they're probably really close okay. to the chucker size they're bigger than a quail um 
much they're smaller than uh, most other species of grouse. Um, like a really big male willow ptarmigan will be a little bit smaller than a rough grouse. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the ones I've seen like hunted on TV, they look like when they're standing on a rock. I don't know if it's like the video camera or what what it is, but they always look pretty big. So yeah, they're not they're not big at all. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite way to eat those? It seems like whenever I shoot them and kind of flay them up, they got that red meat to them, you know. And I'm always just kind of like, yeah. Yeah, they're really unique. They uh they have a just really dark meat. It's red. It's purplish at times when they've really been eating blueberries. And so you don't want to prepare them like chicken because, uh, like, you want to more prepare them like a steak, like a red meat steak. Because if you cook them all the way through, they're going to be chewy and they're going to be tough rather than tender and juicy. So. Um, you can still use them in chicken like recipes. You just need to make sure that you prepare them like a steak before you add it to it. So primarily what I do, no matter what I'm putting it in is I'll cut them up into thin strips. Uh, that way it's, I can cook them evenly. And then I use olive oil and whatever seasoning that you like. And I'll, um, turn the pan up really high and just uh, put them on the pan for like a minute each side and cook them medium rare and then add them to whatever I'm going to eat. Or you can just use that meat and make like fajitas or just eat it with rice or however, steak and eggs. There's, there's lots of different things you can use it for, but my favorite is just frying them up oh, and eating awesome. them like chicken fingers. Yeah, that's a good point with the red meat. Because, yeah, I, I was making that mistake. I would always make them kind of like how I used to make like partridge or chicken. And every time mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I think I'm doing something different. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy how much different uh, like rough grouse and and ptarmigan are. Even, rough, even spruce grouse here are really red, just like a ptarmigan. And you cannot get by with cooking them the same as you can a rough grouse or chicken well i think we could talk i mean endless about many things and i we're gonna have to get on and, and get the the hunting side of your life a little more i just wanted to touch a little bit about this bird hunting and, and you also have an instagram for that yeah. right alaska yeah bird it's also. called alaska bird hunter um we're, you know, think we're going to move on to uh, a rapid fire round question. So they're kind of quick, quick answered. I'm going to throw them at you. Uh, Matt, I know you said you don't want to, but join in on this. Sure. And, um, I'll start out and you can, we'll just alternate back and forth. All right. Sure. Let's do it. All right. What's your, uh, what's your favorite fish to fish for? Kenai River Rainbows. Uh, favorite dream destination of fish. Oh man. Probably Bahamas for bonefish. Yeah. Or a really second closer right even there would be like 
uh, tarpon, a big tarpon down in like South and like Central America. Nice. What is your favorite meal and beverage to have? Well, let's not say meal, snack and beverage to have when you're out fishing. <laughs> oh, so I really like uh, smoked salmon and coffee. <laughs> yep. Mm. Canned salmon uh, or canned herring I've done before and salmon. Or I mean in coffee. <laughs> Uh, what are you listening to when you're headed to your fishing spot? Podcast, music. I like to listen to music. I'm a, I'm from Iowa, so country music is hard to beat, and that's pretty much what I listen to when I'm going fishing. Nice. If you could only fish for one salmon for the rest of your life, what species would you pick? Silvers. Okay. Silvers. Uh, something you're superstitious about when you're fishing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Hmm. That's a tough one. I might have to skip that one. Yeah, I think I got sure. one for you, actually. We were fishing the other <laughs> okay. day, and a breeze came up. And you spelled Never out say the word. Never say the word. W-I-N-D. Yep, the W word, yep. <laughs> we, we, my buddies and I, my buddies and I have been calling it Wendy. <laughs> Wendy. Oh, Wendy's coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Never uh, say it. You're headed out the door to fish. What's one thing that you will not go fishing without? Coffee. All right coffee cool uh most unique person you've ever fished with oh man <laughs> let's see oh no i've i've fished with uh like a a recovered drug addict that's that's a really cool story uh, the guy who taught me how to spay fish was a uh, recovered heroin addict. It's kind of a cool success story. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what's one word to describe yourself? Driven, maybe. Um, I was going to say confident at first, but um, there's a fine line between confident and cocky, and I, I never want to be yeah. cocky, so... Well, we like to wrap up our podcasts uh, with a fish story or an outdoor moment uh, that, you you know, it can be funny. It can be serious. It can be a learning moment. Um, so the stage is yours. Okay. And, uh, oh, man. Let's see. The pressure's on. Um, I love this moment because everyone that we asked, like, we're like, okay. And with an outdoor story, they're always like, uh, uh, I got so many. <laughs> Uh, so I told Matt, I want to talk about chum salmon because I almost said chum salmon for my, uh, my one species for the rest of my life, but I didn't, I said silvers because that makes more sense. But chum salmon story that I have is, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever fished for them for, for them before, but they are mean and big and they are a blast to spay fish for, which you would never really think. 
they would be. And, uh, one day, um, we were going down this, this river and it was a three day float and the water was so dirty. We almost didn't go like it had just kind of almost blown out and it was not quite chocolate milk, but it was really off color. And I thought that there's no way we're going to catch any fish, but we should just go anyways. So we we're half hoping that as we got closer to the ocean, the water would start clearing up and it definitely came down. Like it probably came down two feet as we were floating down and we got to the spot that we had fished two years prior and just did amazing. And we couldn't even see the bottom. <laughs> and most of the fishing that we had been doing was sight fishing and um, just kind of swinging streamers or stripping streamers right in front of their faces. And so um, I had to kind of think outside the box. So I had single hand rods and, but I did bring um, a Skagit set up for my single hand rod because this river particularly had pretty, some overhanging brush there's no way you could do a bad cast and um what i was trying to find was that one fish to roll to kind of tell me where they were and so we we set up camp we were sitting there and we were i didn't quite know where the fish would be i knew where they were where they're at previous years and a fish rolled and so we we hopped in the boat crossed the river and i just started spay fishing blind casting just like you would for any other species and proceeded to have the best fishing i've ever had in my life for the next day and a half <laughs> it was so amazing we probably caught 200 chum salmon on the swing <laughs> and like oh it was the coolest outdoor wow the coolest fishing experience i've ever had and um now I want to go do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Pound for pound chum salmon are quite a fighter. <laughs> they are. I think they're so underrated too. Oh, for sure. Super underrated. And like these were some of like some of them were chrome. Almost all of them had sea lice on them. Uh they were super hot fish. It was it was amazing. I'll never, I'll never ever say anything bad about a chum salmon yeah that's awesome well cool um i'll wrap up the podcast here all right thanks for having me on yeah absolutely um i just want want to thank uh both matt and uh eric for hopping on with us today and uh you know just chatting about uh eric's life and you know Matt filling in for uh, Kyle and uh, bringing a good presence as a co-host. So thank you both for hopping on. Um, some upcoming events. Uh, April, our Young Guides podcast events down here in Washington are, are going to be on Halted. I just don't have enough time in turkey hunting uh, later this month is going to take presents. So um, stay tuned for May. Uh, I'll be putting on some, some stuff and I'll, I'll be putting it out here in the next, you know, hopefully next weeks. Um, so really excited about that. Um, BHA is, uh, AFI, which is the backcountry hunters and angler armed forces of initiative is hosting a, um, 
a film festival down in Seattle. So make sure to check that out. We're going to post it on our Instagram. Um, you can find it there and, and get on the link and uh, be a part of that, support that. I went to their Tacoma one um, and there's nothing like supporting that. So um, yeah, thanks for always listening to our podcast. Uh, we, we really appreciate you guys taking the time, leaving us reviews, letting us know how we're doing, how we can improve. Um, we see that our numbers are doing awesome and we see the, the people and that you guys are liking and what episodes you're liking. You're always very vocal about that. And we really appreciate that. So, um, thanks for doing that. If you haven't go on Apple podcasts and Spotify and leave us, uh, you know, a review, let us know how we're doing. Um, thanks to all our partners, Alaska Rodco, Slay J, uh, Heather's Choice, uh, Shell's Art Studios, NWTF, South Sound Strutters. Um, I'm just very thankful for you guys and uh, go check them out, support them, uh, buy a rod, buy some art, get some jigs, um, you know, support Turkey Conservation Washington. So, uh, yeah really really awesome um i think that's it for tonight's podcast uh once again thanks and uh we'll catch you on the next one Let's deal with the-